0: Okay, welcome to episode 29 of The Social Brain. Uh, Today, we're talking about interpersonal conflict, conflict you have with other people that I'm sure, you know, anyone listening or watching is familiar with having conflict in their lives. Um, And uh, we're going to get into that in just a second. But uh, be sure to, um, if you get anything, any kind of value out of this episode, make sure to like and subscribe to our channels. um, And even check out our Patreon if uh, you if that's something you you think you wanna do, help support us, help keep this show going. Uh, anyway, I'm not gonna spend much time on that. I'm gonna hand it over to my co-host, Taylor Guthrie.
1: Awesome. Yeah, so like Andrew was just saying, like I'm sure that everyone listening right now can relate with the fact that conflict in our lives is unavoidable, right? It shows up in all of our meaningful relationships with our partners, with our family, our coworkers, our friends, right? And most of us have this really strong aversion to the conflict process in general. It's something that, that's really scary to us. And a lot of it's based on our past experiences with conflict, something that uh, made us feel disrespected, made us feel unrecognized, unseen, unheard, right? A lot of the times the conflict made things worse. Uh, emotions were flaring. It felt uncomfortable in our bodies, right? The stress response is this this huge uncomfortable response in our body. We have all of these emotions that are flaring, all of this, right? What I really want to try to do and really try to challenge everyone today to consider is that we want you to try to change the way that you're thinking about conflict, the way that that you kind of conceptualize conflict. Because we all have this this aversion, this idea that conflict is this really negative thing, this thing that should be avoided at at all costs, right? Uh, But you need to realize that conflict is actually the main source of growth in relationships. It's the catalyst for change. Conflict is actually the signal that there's misalignment in the relationship, that our goals are not in tune with one another. And it's a signal that there's a need for communication, a need for healthy communication. And these negative experiences that we have are usually a result of mismanaged conflict, right? It's that that we didn't communicate properly. We didn't talk about our needs and our values and all of these things that were under the surface from what we were actually talking about. And so what we're going to talk about today first is what the literature is really saying about the, the process of conflict, how it unfolds, what the different styles are based on our personality, based on past experiences, how we actually approach the conflict process in general. And what it's doing to our bodies and to our brains and how it affects our cognitive process. Because realizing all of these things can really help you to kind of take a step back to understand how you can regulate these things, regulate these emotions, really bring yourself down in the moment, fight a lot of toxic advice that's out there. Like, don't go to sleep angry because that's that's not good advice. We're not really good cognitively late at night. It's better to have these conversations when we can actually think through things, right? And so, At the end, we'll really get into a lot of the the strategies that that are successful for for regulating these things, for for getting vulnerable, for taking ownership, Uh, the things that have been shown in the research as being successful to move things forward. Because the whole process, the whole point of conflict is to build structure in the relationship. It's to build boundaries. It's to make the relationship itself more predictable in the future. Because when we don't approach conflict, when we leave it under the surface and we just let it simmer and we avoid it or we yield, oftentimes that turns to resentment. It feels like a hot coal that we're holding on to. And we'll try to be kind of present and happy in our relationships, but there's always this elephant in the room, right? This, this avoided thing that we're just not touching and hoping that it just goes away. And so really the big challenge here is that if you can reconceptualize what conflict actually is, start to see it for what it is, start to see it as this positive source of growth, then you can really start to take different steps, try to learn a new language to approach
0: it in a different way so that's my soapbox for the day. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, so I guess, uh, to begin, we can we could dive into like, what is conflict really, like, more so where does it come from? You know, because what we all have these conflicts in our lives, but sometimes it's like, when you step back and think, what is the source? What what is common among all the conflicts we have? What's that common cause like a sort of general abstract cause? Um, what would you say that is taylor
1: yeah i i really like to and i this is this is not all like I, i'm not coming here saying that i'm i'm an expert in conflict right i have my own issues i've had my own issues this week with my partner right it's something that that i want to take ownership for i uh, but what what a lot of the research shows is that conflict is is like an iceberg a lot of the times we're fighting about stuff that's way up here on the surface like uh you didn't do the dishes you didn't fold the laundry you uh you didn't do your part on the the assignment or uh you're just not like respecting me at work a lot of the times what the conflict is really about is is our values it's the things that that we hold as being really important to us And it's so when we fight about these surface level things like the dishes or about someone's contribution, all of these things, it really is about our value to be recognized. It's it's about our values of being respected, about having some type of competence that's recognized, about having some type of equal play in the relationship that we're a part of. Um, And those deeper things are actually really hard to talk about. They're really hard to get vulnerable about, to take ownership ourselves Uh, When you really think about values, uh, I've actually so like when I when I talk to my wife about like feelings, I am like pull out the feeling chart because my feeling vocabulary is terrible. Like I need I need words. I need examples. Uh, And I think that this same thing comes up with with values. When you ask someone like, what do you value? What does your actual value vocabulary actually look like? Because you can download these worksheets that have like 100 examples on them that you can go through and you can look and say, like, look, these are my top five. And if there's a hundred of them, there's a pretty good chance that your values and the person that you're fighting with have different values. And that's probably what the source of a lot of the conflict actually is.
0: Yeah. And it seems like a lot of it is also just um, like misunderstanding what the other person's goals and values are in the situation. And like, so almost like a lack of, of knowledge about what's going on with them and what their actual goals are. Cause like, it's, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is like goals when goals and values are misaligned or when we, we don't know what the other person's goals or values are, and then we, we can't understand their behavior and we, and it's harder to navigate that conflict, right?
1: It's been a while since I've seen the statistics. So I'm, I'm paraphrasing right now, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that it was around 25% of the time were Right. In assuming intent and in assuming someone else's goals, someone else's like uh, values, whatever it is. Uh, and that was done in romantic couples. Uh, and so, <laughs> so much of the time, like three fourths of the time, we think we know what that person wants. We think we know like what they're valuing, what uh, but so much of the time we are, we're misinterpreting that. Uh, and we're, we're putting malice on it. We're putting all of this negative intent uh, and a big thing that you were kind of hinting at, like what really defines conflict is that our goals are not aligned and value, values are goals, right? We have a goal to be recognized. We have a goal to be respected. All of these things. And so this conflict, like I said earlier, is really the signal in the relationship that something is, is not aligned. Uh, and you can you can just ignore it. You can push it under the rug and hope that it just gets better somehow. Uh, but
0: you really need to move that forward if you want to, to come to
1: some type of resolution.
0: Yeah, because like the theme of this episode is really that conflict is not negative, yeah. that like we avoid it or or just you, like don't even um, don't even engage with it at all because we're scared of of losing something right that it's uh it seems like it's all risk and no reward at least to to many of us i think that's like our our predisposition toward conflict at least for me it, it often feels that way and yeah i just to uh, to go back to something you said a minute ago like yeah we're not pretending like we're conflict free <laughs> or anything like that um because you know we're, we're human and we we inevitably run into conflicts with the people we care about and people we don't care about like i i uh, was i was on the the trail walking my dog the other day and uh, got into a a very intense conflict with someone on the trail i won't go into detail but just to say that like it's uh you know it's a learning experience and we're always practicing these things
1: There's someone that was a big part of the research for this episode, Claire Canfield. He's got this amazing TED Talk where he talks about the beauty of conflict. Uh, And he really, in a a lot of his research and a lot of his work, talks about this new approach being like learning a new language, that we really are the reason we've been so unsuccessful with conflict in the past. And we've had so many negative experiences. We've lost things in the process, like Andrew was saying, uh, is because of our process because of our technique going into that conflict itself. And so learning these new skills, it's not enough to just say, just talk about it, right? Because we've tried to talk about it and didn't work, right? There's a specific type of way that you need to talk about it. There's a way that things need to be brought up. There's a certain amount of accountability and ownership that you need to do Right. And that's going to be a big part of this episode is that so much of the time in our conflicts, we get stuck in this justification mode where we think that we're just completely blameless, that it's all this other person's fault. And really what that other person wants to see is us taking ownership, too, is us saying, you know what, I I'm not free of blame in this. Like this is not happening in a vacuum. Right. And we need to figure out how to both take accountability so that we can move this thing forward.
0: Yeah. And I feel like a huge part of that is, uh, is the ability to step back and be like objective and, and rational about what's happening, which is super hard <laughs> yeah. in like, a, th- this is probably the ha- one of the hardest situations to, to have that orientation, because like you said, it's this, you get this immediate stress response, right? You, you have your, your amygdala and your, your stress hormones and your adrenaline are are going especially in those really intense arguments and that makes it harder to to clarify like what's true about the entire situation rather than what do i just feel right now and often it's like we're just trying to get rid of that negative feeling rather than or in like doing so by doing the way we do it is trying to win the argument or like beat the other person it's like a competition um Whereas, you know, when we step back and we do take that ownership, okay, where was I, you know, where, what am I responsible for in this? What did I do that, you know, maybe wasn't uh, optimal? And that I think that takes a certain amount of practice of being able to sort of dial down that stress response in the moment, or at least step back from it for a second.
1: No, and I think that uh, there's there's a couple really important things that I think that you highlighted that kind of lead us into our next topic too. Uh, one of the things that we get stuck in, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself with like brain stuff and everything, but we get very self-protective in these modes because there it's threatening. When we get in these these stress responses, when we get in these threat responses, our fight or flight mechanisms going right. Uh, we if you think about other species, protecting themselves is usually a physical thing, right? But we're also protecting ourselves psychologically. We're trying to protect our needs. We're trying to protect our values, the things that we hold really close to ourselves that we identify with. And in those moments... That's all we're doing is getting into defensive mode. We're trying to say like, no, I'm not that thing that you're calling me. And I'm gonna look for every evidence and everything that I can to win this argument. And that really brings us into this idea of, when you look at the the conflict literature, they talk a lot about cooperation versus competition. And something that I really want to, to kind of highlight is to get you to, to reconceptualize the word competition. Because a lot of people have this idea when you say competition, that it's it's that like we're competing for some prize or whatever it is, but in this respect, competition is that I'm taking the stance of trying to win and at the cost of you losing, right? That I, that's, that's my purpose in this conflict is that I want to move this forward saying that I'm gonna take the power going forward. I'm gonna win this. I'm gonna have this solution and it's gonna be my win. Uh, whereas co- cooperation on the other hand, what we're really trying to work towards uh, is is this more collaborative thing that really requires perspective taking, that requires us to get out of that kind of amygdala type circuit, that stress response that we're in, and be able to use these higher resources that really require us to be in more of a safe space to actually use.
0: Yeah, and I guess to, to add on to that, like the flip side of that competition thing, some people approach it as a um, I need to attack and win and, and beat the mm-hmm. the other person. Whereas another person might see it as a competition, but like a win lose situation, but they are taking the kind of yielding. I'm going to accommodate because I don't, I don't, I just want to get out of it, even mm-hmm. if it means I lose the argument. You know, even mm-hmm. if it means I have to give up everything, uh, for, I'll just whatever. I'd rather have the, you know, peace in in quotes. (laughs) And a really important thing when we're thinking about like this competition versus
1: cooperation, something we mentioned earlier was this idea of misperceptions, of us constantly thinking that we know the intent of the other person. They've done these really interesting research studies where they show that if you're taking a competitive stance, if you're trying to win, that you are wrong about the other person's stance like 70% of the time. (laughs) But if you're taking a cooperative stance, you can usually predict what the other person wants up to like 70% of the time. And so it really shows the difference in the cognitive resources, the cognitive abilities that we have, depending on which of those stances that we're taking. And so when you're approaching the conflict, if you're approaching it from this really defensive mode of saying like, like I need to prove to you that you're wrong, that is not going to move things forward in a productive way. And so I think now we can maybe get into the different styles. And Andrew kind of hinted at one of them, this idea of accommodation, of yielding, um, is is a big one. And I think that's something that a lot of people can relate to, of saying, like, I don't like the conflict process. I, I hate it. It's It feels like friction inside of my body. It A lot of times things get worse whenever conflict comes up. And so, you know what, I'm just going to sacrifice my needs in order to... Just get this thing squashed and move things forward
0: yeah and I feel like some of these that we'll talk or all of these styles that we talk about it might be that you approach diff like conflicts with different people in different ways like maybe with your you know your parents you you go for the accommodating or yielding style or uh, or competing you know or um with <laughs> but with your partner you you're maybe more avoidant or or something. But yeah, I think probably we each have like a our own like typical style that we approach it with.
1: Totally. I think that there's uh there's nature nurture kind of idea wrapped up in here. Our style, our approach that we take into a conflict has a lot to do with our temperament, our personality, whether we're assertive or not, whether we have some type of dominant traits, of uh, really wanting and being willing to express our needs and talk about our needs. Uh, that can be really beneficial because we are, we're being proactive about saying what we want, saying what we need. But if you're over assertive, if you have that competing style, that fighting style, uh, that can really damage relationships. Because if you're constantly asserting your needs on someone, you're not giving them the ability to really talk about their needs as well, right? And the flip side of that, the accommodating side, when you're constantly yielding, you're constantly giving up your own needs, that's actually viewed in the literature as a positive form of conflict resolution because it actually does move things forward, but it leaves you kind of disenfranchised it leaves you in this position of never really having your needs met because you're constantly saying, sorry, you're constantly kind of giving up to the demands of the other person. And so we've talked about, you can come back and listen. We have a whole episode on power and next week we're actually going to do a whole discussion trying to put all of these pieces together uh, because there's a lot going on with power dynamics between the competing style and the accommodating style that usually the assertive person is more competing and the submissive person is usually a lot more accommodating.
0: Yeah. And I mean, some, the, uh, the problem, I guess, with calling it a positive conflict resolution, full yeah. stop, is that <laughs> resentment you're talking about? Like, it's, yeah. it seems like it will be, breed resentment if you are constantly the one, you know, be, for lack of a better term, being the doormat, I guess, in the, this situation. I yeah. uh, just wanted to mention uh, briefly, we have a little bit of activity in the chat. On YouTube, um, but uh, wherever you're watching this, definitely um, throw us any questions you might have. I um, have a couple here, a little little bit off topic, but uh, I, no, I guess one of them's really uh, really closely related. I wonder what happens in our brains when we're talking to people. That's something we've uh, talked about a little bit in uh, an episode on empathy that we've had, and I recently had a video on um, on communication and and um, interbrain synchrony and we've talked a lot about this kind of stuff. So, uh we have more content specifically on that, but when it comes to conflict, we'll also be talking about that later on in the episode.
1: And so, there's two there's two other styles, and one of them we've really hinted at and that's the avoidance style. Right, so this these are people that have experienced really negative conflict in their past, right? That have a, a really strong aversion to the conflict itself. Uh, they have really low windows of tolerance, right? So that means that like they they tend to to get really upset easily when things happen, and so they want to kind of step away from the conflict. Uh, and this this will kind of keep things steady, right? But it's kind of a walking on eggshells approach. It's saying that like, I'm just kind of hoping that this conflict goes away. And I really like what Andrew said earlier, because we really don't just uh, like, we're dominant in one of these styles, but we do use these different styles with different types of people with past experiences with that person, right? Every time I try to avoid conflict with that person, it blows up. And so I'm just not going to approach conflict with that person anymore. I'm just going to avoid it and push it under the rug. Whereas some other people may have more of a cooperative stance when we approach them. And so we're more willing to kind of take this last stance of being cooperative with them, of trying to have these conversations, of trying to get vulnerable. Uh, But what we're really trying to, to highlight is that we need to try to be taking the cooperative stance as much as we can. Because we need to be voicing our own needs, right? But we also need to be respecting the needs of someone else. And so you have competing and accommodating. Right? Being really assertive about your needs is really beneficial. Kind of listening to someone else's needs is also really beneficial. But if you can put the two of those together, it can be really powerful. And it takes a lot of cognitive resources to be able to do that, to be able to understand where I am and what my kind of values and needs and all of these things are Uh, from like a protective place, right? When I'm in that kind of heightened mode of saying, this is what I need. But then it's another thing entirely to say, how do my needs then fit with yours? And do I really understand where you're coming from? Do I understand your needs? Uh, And that there's so much going on in the brain and the body when when we're engaging in all of that.
0: Yeah. And it seems like to get into that collaborative approach, I, I feel like it just keeps coming back to on a kind of that like initial fundamental level, like being able to dial down your own stress response and being able to like engage those cognitive faculties. That's like that's something you have to to practice. I, I think even outside of conflict, just in yeah. stressful situations in general, it's it's just paramount to be able to to step away and think about what the other person is is thinking and what their actual goals and values are in this in in needs uh, in this situation are. Um, but I think it's that's just a hard thing to do. But it's something that the more you practice it probably the better we get.
1: And we have we have an entire episode on theory of mind and empathy. That's uh, something that Andrew mentioned earlier that really gets into. I mean, there's a part of our brain back here, the temporal parietal junction that's specifically used, uh, the researchers think, is specifically used for thinking about the minds of other people, for taking the perspectives of other people. And it's because of the language that we use throughout our lives, talking about, I wonder if that's what he wants or Why do you think he's doing that? Right? The more we engage in that kind of communication, the more we talk about those kind of things, the more our brain starts to realize that it can create these models of other people. It can create models of other people's minds. But this brain region is part of the default mode network and the default mode network usually is not kind of on and active when we're highly engaged and highly emotional right? The default mode network is there when we're just kind of relaxed, when we're thinking about things, right? Just kind of taking it easy. Uh, it's actually the mind wandering kind of brain network. Um, and so that's really what we're trying to engage in a lot of these situations. And so I think the next thing that we really want to to kind of understand is, is what's going on in the brain and the body when we go through these things. But how do we get there? How does that escalation process look? The, the kind of reciprocity that's there. Are you okay, <laughs> Andrew? Oh, gotcha. Yeah, no, I'm not. Yeah, cool. No, I'll keep moving forward. So one of the things that's really important to, to conceptualize and understand is the law of reciprocity. That it's what our kind of social society is built on. And you see this in, in other animals, too. You see this in the, the greater apes, in any kind of social animal that has these like social hierarchies and everything, um, is that they're built on reciprocity. That when I do something positive for you, that you do something positive back for me. And when I do something negative to you, you usually have some type of revenge motive to do something negative to me. Uh, and this is actually the reason why alpha males and like these chimp groups and everything uh, are not always the biggest and it's because they have created a coalition around them because they've said like, you know what? I'll groom you if you groom me and I'll protect you if you protect me. And they've able they've created this kind of cadre around them. What is really important kind of considering the reciprocity though is that there's this law of rough reciprocity that when we do something positive for someone, when we smile at someone, they'll smile back, right? But when we do something negative to someone, there's actually usually a lot more reciprocity there's way more for negative stuff than there is for positive stuff and that's usually what leads to a lot of the escalation
0: yeah okay good i'm back all right (laughs) yes perfect yeah that's that's really interesting and i wonder uh if it it might have to do with like uh stress and anxiety neurophysiology where um when we're in that state of fight or flight like we're talking about when when we're in this like negative um uh, we we feel like we have to defend ourselves in some way. Uh, our brains are really, are, are, there's a filtering mechanism on our perception, uh, where we are searching or, or we are maybe even only seeing the threatening information at the expense of the positive stuff. So, you know, if you're, if you're feeling threatened or you're feeling like some value is at stake, something is going to go wrong. Um, you're more likely to, to see even like a mix of positive and negative information, you're going to be more likely to interpret that as as wholly negative, or or really just pick out the pieces that are negative. And then of course, you know, if that's your mindset, then all you're seeing is the negative and you're gonna throw it right back at that person.
1: And I mean, this this really kind of sets the stage for why misperception is the norm in these situations, right? When we're in this super heightened state and, so think about like fight or flight, right? Is that we we are now like Andrew was saying, uh, let's say the the fight mode, right? Let's say that we've gotten into fight mode. We're uh, we're engaged, right? Uh, we are so hyper focused, and so much of that is evolutionary, is has is, an evolutionary basis, right? Uh, in terms of our threat circuits, our threat processes are conserved through evolution. And a lot of the threat has been around actually finding threatening things in the in the world, right? I'm, I'm about to be attacked. Uh, I'm about to be attacked by a predator or I'm about to be attacked by someone that's a higher status in my ape troop or whatever it is, right? And so I, I go into this this mode of really hyper-focusing on those things that that are coming at me. Uh, and when you're in fight and having this hyper-focus, it allows you to, to have better aim to, to dodge. It has better aim to fight back. Right. Uh, but all of these, these past kind of species that we evolved from didn't have language. Right. And so now these same filter processes, these same attention processes that were are filtering out kind of salient visual information are now filtering out kind of these cognitive semantic type things where all we're all we're honing in on are those things that we need to dodge and those things that we need to kind of hit back at. Right. I, and there's no awareness of the actual intent of the other person.
0: Yeah. I feel like that's so that, that like really hits home for me. Cause I, I definitely notice myself. Like if I'm getting heated in an argument with, with my fiance, I'm like, sometimes I just realize like, are you really like, are you really listening? Are you really like being objective about this? Because there's like a moment I feel like where you can. You can almost notice that, like, oh, they said they said something, and then you almost like inter- can almost consciously feel yourself interpreting it in the worst possible light. <laughs> and
1: so, one of my favorite things to to kind of think about and to study uh, is is attention. Are these filtering processes? Because they're fascinating, right? Like, and one of the things we've talked about this at length throughout this show uh, is that our attention is so intimately linked to our goals. And if our goal in that moment is that I need to defend myself, the brain is only gonna be looking for information that confirms what I need to defend, right? And so I'm gonna be picking out every little bit of information that person says that supports my side. And I'm not gonna be looking for anything that's about their goals, about what they want, right? Uh, And it's really hard to step out of that. You have to transform your goal in that moment. If your goal is to defend yourself, you need to think like, okay, is that the right goal to have right now? Or should the goal be that I need to approach this from a collaborative standpoint? I need to have a goal of trying to understand that person. And I need to convince my brain that that's what's important to me right now, is trying to understand that person. And it'll recalibrate these attention mechanisms. It'll recalibrate the way that I'm bringing in that information, the way that I'm filtering it and interpreting it. Uh, Because so much of the time, what is kind of gray at the beginning as soon as someone takes a stance, it becomes firm commitment, and any kind of reason, any kind of logic, just kind of goes out the window, right? That's that's a huge hallmark of of conflict. I think is very tied into a lot of these processes.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So, like, you, you mean like people once they they land on on something, they they stick to it, stick to their guns, kind of.
1: Yeah. And you see this. I mean, this was if you go back to our influence episode, uh, this is an influence tactic that if you can get someone to commit to something out loud, if you can get them to say like, yeah, you know what? That does sound kind of nice. Then all of a sudden you've got this like this private. I mean, this this thing that's been said out loud that. For them, they don't want to appear as, as being wrong or be a liar or anything like that. And so they then have to defend these things that they put out there because now they've committed to it. They've kind of taken a stance on something. Uh, and so when you're in these heightened positions that becomes part of those self-protective mechanisms that my things that i've said i don't want to appear as as a liar i don't want to appear as someone who's who's kind of misrepresenting myself and so now i'm protecting those core values when really that thing that i'm fighting about is probably not kind of paramount and is is actually probably pretty gray
0: yeah it's when when like our desire for consistency overrides the desire for for truth i guess
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally <laughs> and so i think that this uh This kind of leads into some other stuff. I mean, one of the things about escalation, I think it's really important to know, uh, and I think a lot of people can relate to, is that the original kind of beginning of escalation is usually there's overmatched threat, right? So if I say something that is is really negative that you kind of take personally, uh, then you are going to overmatch that coming back, and that's going to escalate the process, but as we move through conflict and as things get really heated, you'll actually start to see a lot of undermatching that mm-hmm. there's kind of like a, a need, like you're starting to recognize like we need to bring this down. And so there's more conciliatory type messages. Uh, those are not really important to look for. And those are really important to kind of say like, OK, maybe we need, do need to kind of calm this down, take a step back, whatever it may be. Um, and this leads us into really talking about like what is going on in the body during all of this escalation, uh, what's going on in the brain while we're trying to communicate. We've kind of hinted at a lot of it, but.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, we keep mentioning the, the fight or flight response and and really what we're talking about is uh, uh, like this natural like circuitry that we all have that it, it really comes down to activating our sympathetic nervous system. Right? And well, that's, that's really one part of it. That's uh, kind of the autonomic part. That's the part that makes you feel like your heart is racing, or your stomach is tied in knots. Um, you know, your vision narrows, actually, um, yep. yeah, tunnel vision. Um, and that's all a result of the, the engagement of these, these, um, some of the brain regions we've already mentioned, uh, like the amygdala, And, but it's not just the amygdala. And um, I also don't, I want to like, I always have to give this caveat that the amygdala is not just, it's not the fear center. It's not uh, what (laughs) creates emotions, but it's really important for um, drawing our attention to important things in the environment and then kind of helping us to select a response to that. Uh, But there's, there's a lot going on in the brain um, that then triggers this this downstream effect on our bodies, where we feel this urge to do something, to go, and that's kind of what stress is all about: getting us to go do something, whether it's fight or flee, or you know, even in, in a more positive sense, like getting stuff done, or uh, <laughs> you know, being productive, or or even you know, saving someone from a uh, from drowning or something like that. But that it's it's all about. That's why your body has that, that um, sensation of uh, unpleasant sensation, typically. We're constantly
1: on a teeter-totter between being in a position where we can relax, where we can digest food, where we can really rest and, and like take care of ourselves and recuperate, or we're in a very active state right? We're, we're engaged and at the extreme we're threatened, right? And our body has to respond in different ways to those different types of things. It has to send resources to different places in our body, depending on those two different things. And something that, that Andrew is hinting at that's really important to, to kind of recognize, recognize is that the amygdala is a lot of the time talked about in terms of all of these kind of things, because it's situated in a really important place in the brain, because it's kind of a a a position between kind of the cognitive stuff that's going on and all of the physiological stuff. And so it's able to kind of notice, like there's something going on cognitively that's threatening. And so I am gonna kind of, I'm gonna take a step, I'm gonna take a leap out there. Uh, The amygdala response is a lot faster than the cognitive response. It's really important to, to recognize. It recognizes threat before you've had time to think about whether it actually is a threat. And so because of that, it's actually preparing the body for that threat. And that's really kind of uh, adaptive if you think about it, right? It's a lot more, it's a lot better of a strategy to overreact to something than to underreact. Because if you underreact to an actual threat, you can die, right? And so the amygdala's kind of role in all of this is to get the body ready in case there is a threat while the brain is catching up and actually thinking about things. But that means all of those uncomfortable things that are happening to our body, our muscles start to get tight. I mean, you can tell like when you're in conflict, your fists are clenched, right? You start to you feel tense and that's because your muscles are getting ready for an actual fight. You, you have all of the blood is rushing away from your digestive system. It's brushing to your muscles so that you can either take something on or you can run away, right? Uh, and all of the resources in the brain are being reallocated, right? And so you're, you're using the parts of your brain that are important for those survival situations rather than using the parts of the brain that are usually on when you are resting and digesting and doing those things, right? That's why I mentioned the default mode earlier. Default mode network, we found that network by accident and we found it by accident because it w- it was what came on when we weren't doing anything, when we were just laying there, just like just thinking about whether we took the trash out yesterday or whatever. Uh, but those regions in the default mode network are the really important ones for a lot of the cognitive work that we've been talking about of really kind of thinking through social situations, thinking about things that happened in the past and how they impact the future, uh, because the stuff that's going on when you're in threat is here and now. It's I'm engaged in this threat right now. The default mode is, you know, I really need to think about what happened last week or a month ago or a year ago that really set up all of this stuff. And what is it that I can do to then maybe think about consequences in the future, right? Putting those pieces together requires a lot more calm than being in this really heightened state.
0: Yeah, that's that's really important. And um... And with the amygdala, there's, uh, while there's some um, uh, good, good to what I'm about to say, it's also a little oversimplified. So like, a lot of time when we talk about this kind of thing, it's like, the amygdala and the PFC are like enemies, you know, because the prefrontal <laughs> cortex is this rational, logical, you know, supercomputer that, and then the amygdala is just like this, you know, uh, um, what id dramatic, you know, yeah, crazy, uh, <laughs> wild animal that lives under our cortex and and just gets us going. But there's also interestingly about with stress and uh, anxiety and and um, this kind of fight or flight thing we're talking about, the amygdala. It doesn't just override the prefrontal cortex and kind of take over the brain it actually has a way of influencing the prefrontal cortex to instantiate a goal right that is based on avoiding or fighting or, or getting away from threat in some way so it actually I like that. Uh, in that moment can have that backward influence on the prefrontal cortex to tell it to to recruit all, all these other brain regions to engage us in the, the fight or flight uh, mode, the, the kind of um, stress physiology we're talking about. But then it's also true that the prefrontal cortex has a really uh, unique influence over the amygdala and its ability to turn down its activity. It has this, this circuit that, that goes straight to this inhibitory region of the the amygdala that can really um, dramatically reduce its activity, and so that's I, th- I that's why I keep coming back to this ability to step back and turn down our stress response is so important for our, for our ability to engage in arguments, produ- in conflict productively, and uh, step back and be objective and, and think about the other person's values and, you know, our shared values and, and the actual goals that we're, we're, we want to strive for.
1: I think you touched on something really important. And that's the fact that we as humans are so much more deliberative than any other species on this planet. And when I say deliberative, what I mean is that we're able to hold different things in our mind at the same time. We're able to weigh different things and decide which one we want to prioritize. And I think something really important that Andrew was just hinting at is that in that moment, when the amygdala is sending the signal to the prefrontal cortex, it's telling the prefrontal cortex, it's biasing it. It's saying, you should really focus on this. You should make goals around this, right? Because this right now, we need to defend ourselves. Like, this is important. Uh, But the really cool thing about the prefrontal cortex is that it can hold competing goals at the same time. But it takes a time to actually be able to go through that deliberative process to say, like, okay, yeah, this, uh, I hear you. I hear you, amygdala. Like, this is really important. I get it. I get it. I can feel the body, like, everything that's going on. Uh, But there's also this stuff, right? Um, but that really requires you to be able to step out of that and to be able to, and so much of that circuitry from the prefrontal cortex to the midbrain stuff, um, is regulatory. It's saying like, okay, I get it. I get it. All right. Now calm down because we're good. Uh, it wasn't a snake. It was a stick. Like we processed (laughs) it. We thought about it. We're good. Right. Uh, and that really kind of takes time because so many, so many of you can relate to the fact that once you, once you start the process of getting all of these endorphins and these, these hormones and stress things going, you've, you've kind of like kicked something into gear and now you're able to regulate that. You're able to say like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. But now you have to then wait for all of that to clear out of your entire body. Cause like all of that is still now sending signals back up to your brain where your, your body's still like, yeah, but my heart's still beating and like, and and I'm still tense. Like, are you sure we're okay? Are you sure? <laughs>
0: like, That's, that's so true. And I actually, um, maybe like, that's a good transition to like some of these, the, the way that we can more productively deal with, with conflict, and, and just starting out with that, you know, like, okay, you're feeling this, this sympathetic nervous system activation, you're feeling this fight or flight response, stress response, maybe the first like tool we can touch on, like how to turn that down in the moment. Is uh, something I, I learned from Andrew Huberman, who I learned a lot of things from uh, his podcast, the Huberman Lab, um, where he talked about uh, uh, the physiological sigh, which is this just breathing exercise that you can do in a matter of like like thirty seconds or even less, um, that can, has a powerful effect directly on the sympathetic nervous system, actually through through your your heart. Um, the the way that blood is flowing through your heart. It's really interesting. Um, But basically I'll just, I'll try to do this uh, on camera. So you, you take a a double breath in through your nose, like, and then a slow exhale through your mouth. And maybe even just hearing me do that was just therapeutic and really relaxing (laughs) for people out there. Oh,
1: I lost your, I lost your, your audio again, Andrew. Oh, so uh, I'm going to (laughs) talk. So uh, the other the other really important thing uh, in, in all of this is that in order to to engage in that, in order to even do that breath, there has to be a recognition that we've gotten there in the first place. You really have to have this reflexive process in the moment to be able to say, like, you know what, I'm I'm at way too high of a level right now emotionally to be engaging in this conflict in general. I, uh, there's a lot of stuff that they use in like counseling world and things like that, where they have like thermometers that are like, you know, from zero to 10, this is my, this is my emotional level right now. Uh, you don't have to have a physical one present, but, but conceptualize that. Think about it. Think about where you are from zero to 10. And what a lot of the the researchers say is that if you're over a seven on this scale, do so I gotcha?
0: <laughs> my okay. Okay.
1: So I'm talking about like a thermometer. They use these in counseling uh, where it's a zero to 10, where you're at emotionally. And you don't have to have a physical copy of it, but you, if you can conceptualize the idea of it, uh, what they say is that if you're over a seven, you probably don't have the cognitive resources to have a productive conflict resolution. Um, and so if you're going to engage in these regulatory processes, the first kind of thing that you have to do is to really recognize that there's a need for that in the first place. And to be able to in that moment say, you know what, we need to take a break. We need to step back. Uh, there's someone named Sarah Payton that devised this thing called the window of tolerance. Uh, that's really kind of based on this, this idea of like the zero to 10 model that once you're outside of that that tolerance zone, you're in complete fight or flight shutdown, right? The other one that we didn't really talk about was freeze. And I think a lot of people can relate to the freeze response in conflict, that instead of being in this situation where uh, we feel like we're ready to fight or we're ready to run away or whatever that is, uh, we're actually semi-paralyzed, right? We have this immobility. We have this inability to even engage at all. Uh, we're hypervigilant on whatever is going on, right? Uh, so, like, we have all of the information coming in, but we're not able to respond to it at all. Uh, and that it's really important to identify when you're slipping into these modes, when your body is disconnecting your ability to engage cognitively.
0: Yeah. Uh, can you hear? Me? Okay. Cool. Yeah. I got uh, you. I apologize <laughs> for my audio issues. My microphone just keeps keeps uh, dying for some reason. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's that's a really great, really great point. I don't. I think I missed the first part of it, but. Um, yeah, it sounds like uh, you know checking your your level of of escalation in a situ in the conflict and uh, being able to to bring that down within yourself, right? Like it's not trying to tell the other person calm down, you know, because that that typically doesn't work, right?
1: So the other thing that I think is is really important in these moments is that so much of the time uh, things start as what is usually considered like task or process conflict, right? We're, we're fighting about something that we want to change, about how we do something, about how we do the dishes, or how we do the laundry, or how we engage in the thing at work, or whatever it is. Uh, and oftentimes, when those things are criticized, we take it personally. We think that the person is actually attacking us, uh, and that invokes a lot of these defense mechanisms. And so it's really important to, to and we've been saying this through the episode, the whole episode, but to, to really understand intent and perceptions and all of these. And some of the communication strategies around this are really trying to voice to the other person what kind of story you're hearing. Right. Like, mm. you know, the story that I'm telling myself when you did this was that that you really just don't think that I'm competent, that you don't think that I'm able to do these these things. And the person might respond, I, I think that you're amazing at what you do. I, I just, you know, there's something that I, I don't like about the style with this particular thing, but it has nothing to do with your work ethic or anything like that, right? But it puts things into a mode where you're saying, you know what, I feel like there's misperception and I feel like I'm miscommunicating something and you're not attacking them, right? You're not saying like, like you don't do things, you, you're you terrible at telling me or whatever, uh, because you're just evoking defense.
0: Yeah. And I feel like that, that really takes that ability to, to think about what's, what's really going on kind of deeper on a deeper level in your own mind. Like it's sometimes hard to realize like, oh, I'm feeling attacked because, or I'm, I'm feeling like I have to strike back because I think, you know, you are, you're attacking my competence or my, um, you know, you, you're giving me, uh, you think that I'm a bad person. And like, it can sound so weird when you say it just straight out like that, but it's often I feel like our own insecurities are underlying a lot of our our um, like striking back at people because we're we're putting motives into their mind that are a reflection of negative beliefs we have about ourselves.
1: I think that's a really great segue into, uh, so Claire Canfield that we mentioned earlier, he's got this great TED talk. He actually put together this whole theory around conflict communication. He's this the, the really great uh, mediator, works in, in Utah. Uh, and he created this acronym called VOCAB. Um, and it was about how you can really move a lot of this conflict forward. But the counterintuitive part of a lot of this is that it's really more about you. It's about you getting in touch with things that are important to you and really trying to figure out, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of this conflict is like an iceberg, right? So much of what we're fighting about is like way up here on the surface. And so, so V is vulnerability, is really getting in touch with yourself about why it is that this thing is upsetting you. He gave this great example of like the dishes and he had always had this problem with the dishes. Like his his mom always had conflict with him about doing the dishes. And then he went to college and he had this conflict with his roommates about dishes. And then he had conflict with his wife about dishes and with his kids about dishes. And then he started to think about it. He said, you know, it's not about the dishes. It's about, I, I feel like I'm unrecognized when these other people aren't are doing their share right i feel like there's there's not justice here that there's some unfairness in all of this and it's really those those really deep principles that are driving a lot of what's going on and if you can get in touch with that vulnerability if you can say you know what this is why i'm i'm so emotional about this these are the reasons uh the next one is ownership it's really kind of owning all of that right
0: yeah owning your own your own values, right? Your own, like, and I think also part of ownership is right. Like owning your own part in the conflict too, that owning your, your reactions that maybe weren't, uh, weren't calibrated. Right. This is a lot owning of a lot of emotions. ownership going on. <laughs> yeah. Owning your emotions. Yeah.
1: And, and I mean, so much of the time uh, they, they actually talk about a lot. Uh, there's, three different roles that we can take on in conflict. Uh, and one of them is the villain, where it's it's that person that's just the cause of all of the suffering in my life. Like, if only the villain were, were gone, then everything would be good in my life, right? Uh, and then you have the victim, the one that's just completely blameless, that it's just everything is just happening to me, it's all my fault. These are usually people that are talking to everyone about the conflict except the person that the conflict <laughs> actually is. we talked about with. Uh, And then you have the savior, the one that's just trying to fix everything all the time and is actually inserting themselves into conflict when they they shouldn't be and all of this, right? Uh, And the biggest, this really hit me when I was listening to, to some of these talks, the biggest thing across the board with all of these different roles is that every single one of those roles they feel like there's no blame. They feel like they're justified in their role, that they're justified in their assertiveness, they're justified in their victimhood, they're justified in their need to save people, uh, and that there's no blame that should be associated with them. And that's a huge part of all of this is really understanding like, yes, there are villains, victims, and saviors, right? What we're talking about is the role you're assuming in the conflict to avoid the conflict, right? And it's really in those moments that that ownership is so important of really trying to understand, like, why is it that I'm taking that role? Why is it that I have all of these emotions and all of these feelings and these values and these needs? And why is it that I'm not communicating them?
0: Mm. Yeah, that's really, it's really good to to think about, like, if you're playing one of those roles in a conflict. Um, yeah, I think the uh, the villain can sound like, like, it's, uh, it's almost like not even a realistic thing, but, but the reality is I feel like victims or uh, villains often feel like they, they want revenge. They want like to, uh, to sabotage uh, the, the relationship or, or something uh, about the relationship because they feel it's almost like they're the victim who turned into <laughs> like the, uh, the villain over time.
1: I, yeah. And I, I think that a lot of the times the people that are in the villain role have this cognitive dissonance about them too, because they don't want to be viewed as the bad guy. They don't want to be viewed as the villain, uh, but they still feel like they're kind of justified in, in seeking some type of kind of revenge type yeah. conflict. Uh, uh, so we have vulnerability, ownership, C is communication. Uh, and I think that this is by far the most important. This is what I think this entire episode has been about, is about really after you've been able to, to understand your your role in this and what you need and what you want and really getting vulnerable, then you need to be able to communicate those things in a healthy way to that other person in a state of mind that isn't escalated, right? Because the whole point of the communication point is to really align with one another. Uh, We haven't really brought it up because it's kind of there's conflicting results around it, but there's this really interesting role, this really interesting research about synchrony, um, about our brains actually getting on the same wavelength, about them looking like they're processing the same kind of information. there's some results that we found when we were doing this research that say that like romantic couples are more aligned during like conflict, but it was more about like arousal that they were both in heated situations. So their brains were kind of mirroring each other. Um, but I've actually seen some research that shows that these regions of the brain that we're actually concerned about, the regions that are for perspective taking, the default mode regions, those regions seem to be really aligned when we're cooperating, when we're really on the same page, when things are level and we're, we're understanding each other. Um, they've actually shown during like competitive games the people that are competing with each other are not in line with one another, but the people that are on the same team are, right? And so, and it, you can feel that when you are like on the same wavelength as someone, it has a visceral feeling associated with it. It's like, yes, I feel understood. That's really what you're trying to get to with a lot of the communication.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that research about the, uh, the, uh, romantic couples being more, uh, in sync during, um, conflict i think uh one of the issues with that was yeah the brain region they were looking at was the i think the premotor cortex yeah. um so which makes sense you know, <laughs> yeah i guess so yeah uh,
1: i gotta i gotta give a shout out einsteiner two. hello from sweden that is so cool that you're Super listening cool. from sweden yeah thank you for for chiming in on the chat uh Thanks. so we have vocab vulnerability ownership communication a is acceptance And this is a really tricky one for a lot of people because this is really accepting what it is that you can't change, right? Accepting what it is that you have power over, what it is that you can change in yourself that you can change in the relationship and accepting those things that you can't, right? And that is something that really, I think gets visceral, that gets personal for a lot of people is that we have this really strong desire for control. And if you can take that desire for control out of the equation and really practice a lot of kind of radical acceptance in the moment. It can be really helpful at moving the dial in the right direction.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think, um, it, and we want to be like careful to to avoid that. We're not saying just accept whatever terms are offered to you no. in the in the argument. <laughs> it's uh, it's more like accepting what is. You know what no. is is real. What is actually happening and accepting like taylor said it's the what's this the serenity prayer no. that uh you um grant me the uh, something to <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to ex, uh change the things i can uh, and accept the things i can't and uh, the wisdom <laughs> to know the difference something like yes, that yes. somebody else I'm sure.
1: <laughs> uh, but this goes hand in hand with the last letter so we have vocab right vulnerability ownership communication acceptance. The last one is boundaries. And this one is probably one of the hardest things to to invoke, to set. But this is the point of conflict. The point of conflict is to build structure in the relationship. It's to make the relationship more predictable so that these things don't happen in the future. And you can't prevent things from happening in the future without actually defining what it is you're okay with and what it is that you're not okay with, right? Setting boundaries. Like, you know what? In conflict, in our communication... It's not acceptable for you to talk to me that way and if that's the way that you're gonna talk to me then I'm gonna I'm gonna leave the conversation right it, it's setting these these clear kind of rules around how our relationship is gonna move forward I mean it can be around communication but it can also be around like the task that you were writing about right it's like it's like okay, you know what I've I, I understand now where you were coming from that you took ownership for your feelings around wanting to be recognized and that's really what's under the surface with this whole dish thing that's going on uh, you know what? How about we we set something up in the future where like I do this and you do that, and we set kind of rules and structure and boundary around it, uh, so that you do feel recognized, right? Bringing it back to the actual values that were there in the first place.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I feel like a lot of people have issues setting boundaries, uh, like you know myself included, with yeah, with family <laughs> members, especially um, because I think you just you grow up and you have this almost like sense of obligation um sometimes that i think when when you are not uh when you're feeling like you're doing something for someone else um out of like a sense of duty rather than it being a a real reflection of your values um it is uh really easy to skirt the issue of boundaries and just say like that that doesn't matter um i'm or, you know, it'll just lead to more problems than it'll solve. And I think that's when you got to really take a critical look at what, what are those relationships? What do they really mean to you? What's the value that they represent? And, uh, you know, wh- you, you should be setting, or, I mean, for your own good, setting these healthy boundaries, uh, is the best thing you can do. And actually like for the health of the relationship, probably the best thing you can do.
1: There's a a guy on YouTube, Jimmy on relationships. He's fantastic. Uh, Kind of ridiculous at times, but really good. He's got amazing stuff about a lot of this conflict and everything. Um, And something really struck me in one of the videos that I watched with him around boundaries. And he said, uh, boundaries are only unhealthy to unhealthy relationships. If setting a boundary is gonna end a relationship, then it's because that relationship is unhealthy, right? Because the boundary itself is supposed to protect your needs. It's supposed to be you saying like, this is this is what's important to me. This is what I value. And this is what I need recognition and respect and and anything around in order to kind of continue through in this relationship. And if that's something that prompts negativity, that prompts uh, any type of gaslighting or anything like that, there's, there's a problem there. And that's that that person is maybe in a very competitive stance that doesn't recognize that, that you have needs that need to be met in that relationship as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It can be also just that competitive stance or like, you know, they may not even know they're doing this, but, but using like, could be using you for, to, to um, for, for some end for themselves. Um, And that is, that's when it's extremely important to set those boundaries. But I think that's often when people, when it's the hardest for people to set those boundaries, because it's like, if they're not aware that this is um, this is a problem in the relation that this relationship is unhealthy, um, then it can just seem like it's a total loss to even go into to any kind of boundary setting or any kind of um, conflict. Uh, it looks like Taylor Taylor's video froze a little bit, but I think you're no you're back there. We oh, cool.
1: <laughs> no, I uh, so I think the biggest thing with. Boundaries- to tell someone forward most important thing to say about, about relationships uh, before we kind of are on, uh, only kind of successful if you actually uphold the if, if you set a boundary like, this is, this is what I need going forward and that happens again and you don't actually uphold it. You're actually upholding the boundary.
0: It's a, it's a boundary, right? It's a, it's it's not a, a just a, a suggestion. It's a, it's a fence. It's a line in the sand that, when it's crossed, there are, there's some kind of uh, you know consequence.
1: And the thing about change, right? You're having something that needs to change in the relationship. We have we have a whole episode on neuroplasticity that I think is super related to all of this. And that's the fact that change is really hard. Like it's, it's one thing to talk about it, but change takes repetition. It takes consistent practice of doing that thing over and over and over again, because our brains are very tempted to go to the natural way that we've been doing things. And so all of these things that we've been talking about, about really bringing these conflict strategies into your life, they take practice. They take doing these things over and over again in having the consequence of a boundary instilled over and over and over again to the point that that new behavior starts to become more automatized, starts to become something that you're you're naturally falling into. You're naturally communicating this way. you're naturally reflecting on your emotions and your values and your needs and you're taking ownership and you're accepting things. Those are things that take practice. They take really rewiring a lot of these these old ways of doing things and the way that you've conceptualized conflict and and really kind of transforming it learning, it's like learning a new language.
0: Yeah. And I, something we mentioned earlier, um, the, the consistency principle where, uh, when you, you publicly commit to something, you want to remain consistent with what you said. And so you can kind of take advantage of that in yourself that, you know, you may have, uh, set these boundaries like mentally in your head, but if you don't actually state them to another person, um, it's a lot easier to, to kind of, fool yourself into thinking that, uh, they're not so important, you know, and, and I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll let them cross the boundary this time. And, and maybe I'll next time I'll, I won't. Um, but yeah, and I, I, think for me, like the biggest takeaway with this conversation would be to like challenge yourself when you're, you find yourself in a heated, um, conflict to step back, to dial down your stress response and to really, really ask yourself, uh, what is at stake here for me? And what is the other person? What's at stake for them? And just taking that, I think, overall objective stance toward it, this just really trying to, um, to listen, and to focus on on what's actually happening and, and you know, understanding the context that, it, that it's arising in, uh, it's, it's tough, but I think like, the more we practice it, the better we get. And, um, yeah,
1: I think a strategy with that before I kind of end as well, uh, something that's been really helpful for me is in those really heightened moments when we do need to step away, if you have this urge to say something, to to send something, right? We've all had those moments where we like, we, we create this like super angry text and send it, write it, write down all of those things that you're super angry about and don't send it and wait for your stress response to come down And then reread it and really think about whether or not those things are important things that need to be said or whether they're inflammatory, whether they're escalatory, whether they're actually considering the other person's needs. I can be really helpful in bringing these things down. So I think the the really important thing that for me that stood out in this conversation is that we really all need to reconceptualize what conflict is. If you can go into the conflict knowing that the purpose of conflict is growth is really kind of this catalyst for change if you can understand the beauty of the conflict and understand that most of the time when we successfully navigate a conflict it actually brings us closer together right you we've all had those moments where it's just like we just got through it we just had this this really amazing moment and now we're so much stronger because of it those are the things that we need to keep in mind and we need to realize that the more we avoid these things the more we yield and accommodate And the less that we try to actually collaborate and cooperatively work through these things, the more it's going to build resentment. And there's always going to be this tension, this this elephant in the room. And it's really hard to kind of find the strength and the courage to bring that stuff to the surface, but it's so freaking worth it. So that's what I got for you.
0: Love it. Well, um, that's about our time. Uh, Thank you all for listening and uh, for the activity in the chat. I love it um i'll just throw up our our qr code for uh our patreon again uh, if you want to help support us go to patreon.com slash the social brain yeah i think so okay (laughs) the link is in the description um (laughs) so yeah wherever you're watching or listening to this definitely check out our patreon uh you can help support us help keep this show going we want this to be free as free as possible to people we want um to produce content that's uh, free to consumers. But it's also, you know, the reality is we both have other jobs outside of uh, this and we we need your support and it will be, you know, it'll help us build a better show too.
1: Imagine how good this would be if this was our job.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'd be so much better at this.
1: no we we really appreciate uh, the everybody tuning in the the people that come back for more and more uh, we love we love doing this and it has given us uh, an opportunity to to really synthesize and put all of this stuff together um tune in next week our last three episodes influence power and and now conflict we're gonna do just kind of an open discussion between Andrew and I about how these things are connected to one another and really kind of draw some some parallels between all of this stuff so We will see y'all and bring
0: your questions too. And uh, if you're watching this afterwards on YouTube, uh, definitely throw a question in the uh, the comments section on either either of our pages. Um, We will we'll try to address those the ones related to what we're talking about, but also just come to the live and and engage with the the chat. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you next time. Cool. Thanks, guys.